I'm a big fan of faking it till you make it. When someone is not confident, that is the first thing that you see. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, Cindy Crawford joins me on Skimmed from the Couch. She needs no introduction, but I will give her one anyways. Her decades-long modeling career catapulted her to global supermodel status. And she is also a businesswoman as the founder of the skincare brand, Meaningful Beauty. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thanks for having me. Uh, It feels very weird to even try to do an intro for you. Everyone knows who you are. I thought you did a very good job. Thank you. It was short, but sweet. We skim here. So skim your resume. Do the quick skim on you. Wow. Let's see. Let's go way back. Student, then worked in the cornfields, cleaned houses, worked in a clothing store, senior year of high school, started modeling. My freshman year in college, um, I went to Northwestern, but continued to model in Chicago dropped out of college to pursue modeling in a more, you know, full-time way. When I was 20, I moved to New York and that's really where my career took off. And from there, you know, I think modeled, but also paid attention. And so eventually I was able to start doing some of my own projects and having my own voice. And I think being excited about that part of modeling is what has enabled me to do it for so long and still be as enthusiastic about it today as I was from the very beginning. You know, obviously, you know, many a Wikipedia, Google searches can come up on you. What is something that we wouldn't be able to find out about you on Google? Oh, I hopefully a lot, <laughs> you know, because I, I definitely think there's part of your everyday life that just isn't, not that you are ashamed of it, it just doesn't make it into public consumption. It was funny, I was having this conversation with my son the other day about fame. And, you know, a lot of times I think for children of famous people, that's a lot of pressure on them. And I was saying, but I hope you're not proud of me for being famous. Like fame is just a byproduct of what I do. Um, I hope you're proud of me for blah, 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 blah. So it's, I think it's all those little things like being a good friend, being a good sister, being a good daughter. I like to bake. I mean, some of these things I probably have randomly mentioned in interviews, but like they don't come up if you Google my name. (laughs) So I want to kind of start in the beginning of your career, which is, as you mentioned, like really young and had career, like once in a lifetime career opportunities put in front of you. How did your family think about you pursuing these? Well, I half jokingly say, but it actually isn't really a joke that, you know, when I was a kid, I don't think the average girl thought about modeling as a, they really, I didn't even know it was a real job. You know, I mean, I I think I got Teen Vogue and I knew who Phoebe Cates was and Brooke Shields. But other than that, it was never something a girl from a small town in Illinois would have thought about. And then at one point I was approached by the local photographer in our small town and he, he took pictures of everything from like a burned down house to a homecoming parade. And he saw me like at a high school football game and he asked to photograph me. 
And my parents insisted on accompanying me on that photo shoot because they thought he was some kind of creep. That first little step kind of led to another step, led to another step. But I think, you know, my parents were rightly concerned, accompanied me when I went to Chicago for the first time and when I met with modeling agencies. And then finally, I think as they started getting a little more comfortable with it, you know, they they let me do some stuff on my own. I think my dad thought it was a nice word for prostitution, to be honest with you. Like he he didn't really understand. And then also like coming from a blue collar family and like my beginning modeling rate was $75 an hour. Very quickly, I was making more money than my than my parents. And I think that that was confusing for them and didn't quite understand. And there's certain jobs that just pay like a stupid amount of money. It's not like that I work harder necessarily. I mean, I work hard, but I've done jobs like picking corn for 12 hours a day. That is much harder than modeling. <laughs> what was your first big shoot? I mean, really? In the beginning, every shoot was a big shoot. It was exciting. It was a new photographer, even if it was, you know, for Sears or Montgomery Wards, because it was just being in this like completely new environment with new people. I always was an observer and I always tried to learn fast. So I think, you know, I wasn't just, I, I feel actually blessed that there were no cell phones then because I wasn't like my head wasn't buried in my cell phone while I was getting my hair and makeup done. There was nothing really better to do, so you observed. But I think probably the first big break that I had was working with a photographer in Chicago named Victor Skrbneski. And he was like the best photographer in Chicago. And I learned a lot from him, even though he was a tough teacher in a lot of ways, but I definitely learned how to model for him and how to be professional. Like you didn't dare be one minute late. Sometimes you had to do your own hair and makeup. Sometimes you had to bring your own clothes. So I think what I really learned in Chicago or reinforced was that model, I approached modeling as a job, not as a lifestyle. And it was a great job, but it wasn't like who I was. And I understood that it was a job. So by the time I got to New York, I'd been doing it for two years already. And I was 20 and I was ready. So that when they did send me to like the top photographers in New York, I already had some experience. I felt comfortable walking into a room and introducing myself. And I think that that helped my New York experience took up very fast because of the two years of prep really that I had in Chicago. We talk a lot about confidence on the show. There's some women that we've brought on the show are super successful in whatever industry they're in, where they have said, you know, I started with so much confidence. I was just born with confidence. My family gave that to me and I walked into the room. I had no reason to be confident, but like I was. And over uh-huh. time, the pressure of whatever industry they're in got to them. And that's when their confidence got rocked. And then others are like, I had no confidence. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I was a kid or I was, you know, the newbie on the block. Where did you fit in on that? Did you walk in confident or unconfident? I think I was somewhere in the middle, really. Like, you know, I was blessed with two very different parents. My mother was like a well of unconditional love. And I think that is so great for a kid to have that because there's like a baseline that you're good enough, right? And then I had a dad who also, of course, loved us, but he rewarded success, ambition, achievement a little more. Like, so I was a good student. So he liked and challenged me to get straight A's all through middle school and then all through high school. And then I accomplished that and that felt great. So really having both, the two different influences very much helped for me, but also, you know, it was a totally different world and not a world that anyone in my life could help 
introduce me to or how to act or how to behave or how to walk into this room. I think, and still to this day, I'm a big fan of faking it till you make it. I definitely agree that confidence is probably the single most attractive quality in a person. Well, no, because there's also like, I call it passion, but under passion is confidence and compassion. But when someone is not confident, that is the first thing that you see. And if someone's confident, you're just drawn to them. So even on those days, and believe me, I have them, I mean, we all have bad skin days, bad hair days, whatever you want to call it, or just general not feeling your best self. It's kind of like if someone asks you, like, what's, I get asked this in interviews sometimes, what's your favorite feature? And then what's your least favorite feature? I'm like, why would I point out my least favorite feature to you? Because now if I said, oh, it's my nose or something, the first thing you're going to do is like, look at my nose from all angles. I would never tell anyone my least favorite thing about myself because I don't want to draw attention to it. Same with emotionally. It's like, we all have bad days, but yeah, fake it till you make it. Part of faking it till you make it is, is learning how to stand up for yourself. How did you right. learn how to advocate for yourself? You know, there were there were times where I didn't. Is there um, a time that really sticks out to you? This wasn't necessarily that I didn't stick up for myself, but I remember going for the first time to this the big photographer in Chicago, whose name was Victor Skrbnewski, and he had a woman that like was the studio manager. Before you got to see him, you had to get, kind of get through her. She was like the keeper of the gate, and I was eighteen, and I had like my little guest jeans on and, you know, my little white capizios or something. And I walk in and she takes one look at me and says, you have a zit on your face. Oh my God. And I was like mortified because it was kind of the first time I really understood in this world of modeling, I'm, I'm like an object. And so people talk about you in a way like that. Like you have a zit on your face. Like you wouldn't say that to any other person in any other environment. But I said, oh, I'm 18 you know, and I didn't get to see the photographer that day. But I remember walking away going, wow, that was really interesting and like taking time to digest it. And then um, other times where I didn't stand up for myself. I mean, I had one summer after senior year of high school, before I started Northwestern, that I learned a lot of tough lessons about modeling. One was I went to Rome for a job and the photographer asked if I would cut my hair before we went. And I said, no, I don't want to. So they booked me anyway, but when I got there, I sat down in the makeup and hair chair and the hairdresser chopped my ponytail off. That wasn't me not standing up for myself, but that was me realizing like I had to be more proactive, I guess. I don't want to get a reputation as someone that someone can just chop off their ponytail. And then a few weeks after that, I was on a photo shoot and we were shooting like a spa story and I was in a steam bath and the photographer, he was outside of the steam and I was in and I started feeling dizzy because I was in esteem. And I tried to be like, excuse me, like I'm feeling faint, let me out. And he just shook his head. No. And I was like, you are kidding me. And I fainted and they dragged me out. So then the next time he asked me to do something on that same shoot that I, I was like, this is sketchy. I was like, you know what? Um, can you just show me how to do that? It was like to lay on this very thin ledge that went over a cliff. He was like, oh, you know what? Uh, we'll do something different. So I've used that a lot because people will tell you, like one time I was doing a surf story for American Vogue and they wanted me to get on a surfboard with a surfer. He was going to paddle out and they wanted me to crawl on his shoulders and like surf in with him and don't get my hair wet. Stop it. 
And I was like, hmm. I said, you know what? Can you just show me how to do that? I'm not sure I understand. And they changed the <laughs> shot. So I've taught my daughter that one as well. That's amazing to apply that to any, any job. You know, as we've talked about, you obviously, you became one of the most famous supermodels in the world. And with that comes attention. It comes lots of eyeballs on you at all times. It comes a lot of access to a lot of things and pressure. How did you just stay sane? How did you take care of yourself? How did you stay grounded? Well, I mean, I definitely think a lot of it, it's how you were raised, right? I mean, and I really was raised in like a very down to earth, Midwestern family with like strong work ethic and feeling very much a part of an extended family. So I, I feel like I had a good base. And then, like I said before, like modeling is what you do. It's not who you are. So I think also that helped. I didn't see it as like, I'm a, I'm a supermodel now. It's just like, oh, I model. Then I think once I was in New York and things started really happening, you know, definitely maintaining those close relationships with my mom, with my sisters, with my friends from high school. Even one of my longest friends in New York is a makeup artist from Minnesota that we met back in Chicago and we both moved to New York at the same time. So we both have like this Midwestern kind of approach to life. You know, there are things you do get a little spoiled at times. And also like my husband said, he still says, he doesn't really think I have a great judge of character because he's like, well, yeah, because people show you their best selves. And he might be, he might be right about that, but also I can only judge by what I see and experience. So I try to treat everyone the same and, and kind of know how people treat me, get a read from that. But maybe he's right. <laughs> you became known not just as Cindy Crawford, the supermodel, but Cindy Crawford, the businesswoman. What was that pivot? How did that pivot happen? I think sometimes people give me credit that I strategize this whole career, which is giving me too much credit. What I will say is that as I started learning, and I mean, I'm so lucky I got to be around all the best photographers, but also best art directors and best advertising people and best hairdressers and designers and makeup artists. And there's just so much to learn. I guess that's where that pivot is, is where you're brave enough to insert your own opinion, you know? And when was that exact moment? Like we're on a shoot where you're like, well, I have an idea too, you know, like in the first time you kind of like barely whisper it and then maybe they take your suggestion and you do it and it turns out. And then the next time you might say, Hey, can we just try one more role my way? You know, you, you start feeling a little more confident and that really empowered me over the years to do other things. For instance, my exercise video or eventually my own skincare line. Who was mentoring you as you kind of started navigating sort of these business opportunities? Who were you going to for advice? I'm sure you had a zillion different opportunities. So how did you figure out like, no, this is the right thing for me? Unfortunately, I never had one mentor. And it was at a time where the agencies for modeling in particular didn't look at a model as a long-term career. You know, they, they was like, okay, you'll get five years out of this girl and then we'll just plug in the new one. So I wouldn't say my modeling agency, that wasn't their approach to business. But I also, I had a publicist that I'd worked with for, or that I have now worked with for a long time. She started when I did my first exercise video, still work with her. And then I eventually migrated from a modeling agent over to CAA in LA. And I have an agent there that I'm also still with. And there was another 
agent that was on the team in the beginning. And they always weighed in on things. And I value every single one of their opinions. However, I don't value any of their opinions more than my own. And there was a point where I realized that I'm not the world expert on anything except for Cindy Crawford. It's a great line and it's a great lesson around anybody, like no matter what their job is, but also like if you're building a brand and in your case, like your brand is also your name where nobody has built what you're building before. And you can go to lots of people for advice, but you in the end, like have to like know how to sift through that advice and make the call that is right for you or for your brand. It's easier said than done. So how do you sort of internalize a lot of the the feedback or suggestions or thoughts so that you can tap into your gut? Look, there's Cindy the woman, and then there's Cindy Crawford the brand. And I definitely see it like that. So I would ask eventually before anyone was talking about personal branding or whatever, it was like, does, but you know, I kind of thought that way, even though I didn't articulate it. What is Cindy Crawford? I'm a Midwestern girl. I was kind of like the sexy girl next door, hopefully not intimidating, new, not too high-end elitist. You know, my first brand alliances that were successful were things like Revlon and Pepsi. Those things were very like all-American and while aspirational, they're still accessible. So really like everything I did had to fit in that umbrella. I think, you know, when I did my exercise video that made my umbrella bigger because then I got health and wellness kind of in there. But for instance, like would I ever do a cigarette campaign? No, that doesn't make sense for Cindy Crawford. So I think that that helped me to make decisions. But I also did things like there were certain things where everyone was telling me not to do it. For instance, when I first did Playboy at the time, everyone was like, that's a huge mistake because you're doing Vogue and you're doing like these fashion things and like Playboy is something different. But I trusted Herbert's, who was the photographer, and he told me I would have total approval and even I would have approval not to run the story. So that enabled me to feel safe. And then we did that. I think because of that, I might have gotten, I can't remember the exact order if I got Pepsi because of Playboy or Playboy because of Pepsi. But, you know, sometimes when you're a fashion model, you, your audience is more women and more fashion oriented. Whereas like doing things like Playboy and Pepsi, that broadened my audience by like doubled it. And then that enabled me to do MTV, House of Style, because even though it was a style show, their audience was more male. So I kind of like answered both of those needs for them. And again, that was just a happy accident. But sometimes, you know, that is what happens when you are, you know, step out of your comfort zone a little bit. Again, but you're stepping out. But at the same time, like, I didn't ever feel like I was doing anything that was like against me. And sometimes I think the agents or the mentors or advisors, sometimes they're coming from a different place or they don't want to screw up what's working. But sometimes you have to take chances and they're not all good. Look, I did a movie that was like a disaster. But what I learned from it was that I don't need to do another movie. It was like, oh, wow, like this wasn't my thing. So now I don't have to spend any more energy, you know, reading scripts or thinking about that. How would people describe you as a businesswoman? I think they would say, well, no one ever has to ask what I'm thinking. (laughs) You know what I'm thinking? And I want that directness with people. Like that to me is a waste of time where everyone's sitting in a meeting trying to make each other like, like so worried about stepping on someone's toes. I mean, there's a way to deliver 
honest feedback without being cruel, but just honest. And I appreciate when people are that way to me. So I think that, but also that one of the things I get a lot is that I'm consistent. Like I've noticed, like I have a furniture line too. So sometimes they'll show me a piece of fabric or a design and I'm like, "Mm, I don't really like the fringe or whatever. And maybe they think they caught me at a bad moment or something. So they show it to me again, two weeks later. And I'm like, "Mm, I just don't like the fringe. Like I'm very consistent. I don't waffle. And I cultivate that because I want to make a decision and move on. Sometimes it's the wrong decision and then you pivot from there. But I don't want to agonize over decisions. It's agony for me to agonize over decisions. My husband's more like, we'll make a decision. And two weeks later, he'll be like, he's thinking about that thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I let that go. I've moved on. So then I have to like backtrack to get back there. I like to just make a decision and move on. And again, it's not always right, but that's my process. You know, I relate to that a lot because I think I have different sides. Danielle and I talk about this a lot where like we both can be incredibly decisive. And then, you know, at other times, sometimes bad because there's two of us and it's like, wait, like, are you second guessing it? Should I second guess it? I've definitely talked to like younger founders coming up in their career who also, you know, talk about like, how do you just let something go? Do you have any advice or tricks around how to just not agonize, like just keep going? I guess just stay busy (laughs) because you know what, if you're busy doing other stuff, you don't have time to go back. I mean, that doesn't mean you can't learn from mistakes. I mean, sometimes you make a choice and then six months later or whatever, it becomes obvious like, oh, we shouldn't have done that. I'm going to chalk that up to experience, you know? I follow that. And again, this is where, like my husband, who's also very successful, and I would say he probably has like a more, I don't know if that's right or left side of the brain, but whatever the creative is than me. I'm a big fan of good enough. Not everything requires perfection. And sometimes the cost of that last 10%, getting it perfect, isn't worth the return. Now, for my husband, it is because he literally, his brain can't relax until the execution is as perfect as his vision. But sometimes, I'll, you know, like, I don't know if there's something slips through the cracks on like a, an email that's going out to your customers or whatever. And I just don't obsess over those little things. And then I'll just be like, okay, next time I need it two days earlier. So I have time to make the changes or whatever. And really understanding, especially if you have a business that you're part of a team, you know, and everyone's doing their best. And sometimes things slip through the cracks and kind of putting your energy where you can add the most value and have the most impact. And then not obsessing over the small stuff. So your children are also quite well known. Kaya obviously has already become a supermodel in her own right. When she sat down with you, when you sat down with her around kind of when she's decided to pursue this, this career path, is there a mistake that you told her, don't repeat this? Don't, don't do what I did or watch out for a blank. Obviously, most of the advice I give her is more motherly advice, not business advice. Because also I have to understand that the business has changed a lot. Here's one piece of advice I tell her. If they suggest, oh, this shoot came up, we think you should pass or we think you should do it, ask why. That's how you learn. Like you want to learn how they're thinking. You may or may not agree with it. So then you can, once you know why, you can say, well, I don't agree with that. So I want to do it. Or I I don't agree with that. So I don't want to do it, whatever it is. But to really try to learn and not let, not give your power away, don't let other people make decisions for you that matter. 
And I just tell her to keep off her phone and learn and talk to people because not only can you learn a lot about the business, but you know, you might be meeting your new best friend. And, you know, if your head's in a phone the whole time, you're missing that experience of getting to know someone. Well, on that note, I'm going to look at my phone right now to uh, answer, to ask you our, our, our lightning round questions. Morning person or night owl? Morning person. Last TV show you streamed or binge watched? Outlander. Uh, you mentioned you were a baker. What's your go-to baking recipe? Banana bread. Last time you negotiated for yourself? Fortunately, I don't really have to do that anymore. I negotiate with my husband. <laughs> okay. George and Amal, we know your friends. Do you oh. think that they would want to be my friend? <laughs> Absolutely. What is the best just skincare tip hack? Like forget brands, but just like, what is the thing that you should do? Honestly, I think I've learned so much from Dr. Sabah and that's who I do Meaningful Beauty with. But the very first thing for everybody, it starts with protection. And so that's using sunscreen and putting a hat on and not letting yourself get burned. I mean, just that, just protecting your skin, like that's step one. What is the show or cover that means the most to you? There's two. It was like the first Versace show with the George Michael song, Freedom, with Christy, Linda, and Naomi. But then two years ago when we had like a reunion, not the exact same group of women, but it was such a moment of, you know, being there for Donatella, remembering Gianni, that same song. I mean, even like the hardened fashion crowd got a little choked up. <laughs> I loved it. I watched that. I thought that was amazing. Craziest thing you ever like read about yourself that we were like, that is so not true. Oh, some of the weird beauty tips that they've like, that I put like coffee grounds all over my body. And then I'm like, I'm reading it. I'm like, does that work? I'm going to try that. But you know, but they're crediting it to me or someone wrote once that they sat next to me on a plane and I, I only ate like like I ordered a meal of fruit salad, which also is not true. I like to eat. That's why I exercise. <laughs> Quarantine hobby? Oh, and the, it's kind of changed. It was doing puzzles in the beginning. You know, I definitely organized all my closets, drawers, kitchen, all of that stuff. Uh, greatest advice? Probably chocolate. Okay, last question. Shameless plug. Shameless plug? Oh, I don't like doing shameless plugs. <laughs> Look, I think that I feel very fortunate that my life, the way that my career life has enabled me to grow as a woman. I'm not trying to be the same model at 54 that I was at 20 or 30. So like over the years, I've done things that speak to me. You know, I got involved with a baby company when my children were little. Uh, when I started noticing my own skin aging, I started Meaningful Beauty. That's something I was passionate about. When I did my exercise video, it was like, wow, I discovered exercise. And I love that approaching my industry that way makes me feel like it can continue into whatever, whatever is interesting to me at the time. It's a great way to end. Cindy, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim From The Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. My name is Jess Wolf, and I am the CEO of Rebel Girls. Uh, Rebel Girls is the girl-driven edutainment brand 
for girls. We are on a mission to inspire and instill confidence in 50 million girls over the next five years. We're at uh, 10 million to date. We write books, we have podcasts, and we're working on a number of other media formats to inspire girls and give them confidence and give them real life heroines and a diverse set of them. Our content is very, very multi-generational. We design it for girls ages five to 10 years old. So we make it very, very entertaining. It's educational. It's written in fairy tale format as a way to introduce biographical, nonfiction, historical women and, and history to girls. But we really enjoy this broad multi-generational audience and find that women ages, you know, four to 95 enjoy our content and listen and read. 81% of children's books have a male protagonist that has a job, a career, or even career aspirations. It's only 19% of children's books that have a female protagonist that has a job or any career aspirations. So the premise was, how do we give girls real-life heroines and completely diverse set of them across history, geography, field of excellence, so that they can see themselves on these pages and dream bigger and aim higher and have confidence to uh, pursue their dreams. You can find our books at www.rebelgirls.com. You can also buy them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, numerous indie bookstores. Our books are translated into 49 languages and available in 85 countries. And you can listen to our podcast anywhere you like to listen to podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, etc. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 